Welcome to this live stream town hall, taking your questions today. The one and only Congressman from North Dakota, Kelly Armstrong. Congressman Armstrong, it's always great to see you. Yeah, it's great to be here. So there's a lot of news that we're going to be talking about, but you and I have had this conversation before. And that's why I want to start here, because I think you could make an argument that it cost President Trump the election. And I'm talking about uh, social media and really tech tyranny. So uh, as you know, Facebook, I think it was yesterday, time is going so fast, but they still banned the president, former president of the United States from their platform. Now, President Trump put out a statement and said this, these corrupt social media companies must pay a political price. I've asked you this before. What are you, what is the GOP going to finally do to make these social media companies pay for what they're doing? Well, I think, you know, Ken Buck is the ranking member on the antitrust subcommittee. And I served on that committee last Congress. And I think if you asked him, he'd say the conversation has to be about starting to talk about whether we're going to break them up or not. Um, I think, you know, and I actually retweeted this. It's fascinating on social media to some degree or another. I retweeted this from a very uh, liberal New York Times columnist. Uh, the fact that we're talking about an internal decision from a company like it's a Supreme Court decision should tell you all you need to know about the amount of power these companies have. And uh, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say in the history of the United States, we've never had three companies more powerful than Google, Facebook and Amazon. And when we talk about 230 reform, or we talk about all of these things, I think eventually we better start having a conversation. And each company is different, right? But whether they have simply become too big and have too much control over the, the entire economy. And at least in Facebook and Google's answer in how we get our information, right? This isn't a First Amendment case. I think people need to recognize that. But you don't have to trigger the First Amendment to understand that censorship is bad. And I'll give you an analogy to this. Uh, and it goes with data privacy. There's no Fourth Amendment right to privacy when you deal with big tech either, but we all know that data privacy is an important conversation moving forward. Just because you're not triggering a constitutional right doesn't mean that we shouldn't have serious conversations about the influence these companies are having and how they wield that influence. I mean, look what they did with, I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that if it would have not been Tim Scott, that the posts about him would have been removed much quicker than they were. So are you in favor of breaking these companies up? I'm in favor. Of, so I, I think we have to start seriously looking at it. Yes. But I mean, I, I, mean, I think you do. This, this is where I think the audience right now is going to go start. Look, look what's happened here. I mean, how many people do they have to cancel before we get serious? And you're saying, hey, we need to start about thinking well, about it. Yeah, but in order to do that, particularly from remember, antitrust is mostly a function of the law enforcement, FTC, executive branch agencies. So if you're going to do this from a congressional level, you I mean, you can't write a law towards Facebook. You never write a law towards a specific company. So if you're going to start to deal with this, you have to start dealing with how you're going to deal with this, not only for this, but moving forward. And there are a lot of people talking about what the remedies are. There was actually a lot of bipartisan support last Congress. Uh, I will say what ended up happening is we took a very specific group of um, or specific economic platform. And then some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle decided they wanted to rewrite antitrust law completely as it as it as it equated to the whole economy. So we also have to remember we're dealing not just as Republicans and Democrats, but it has to be something if we're serious about it to move through both chambers and both parties. So let me frame it this way, because 
I think you can make a strong argument that because Twitter denied the New York Post to put the story out about Biden, there's polling that shows that if they would have had that story out, uh, they would have voted differently, potentially giving President Trump the opportunity to win the election. My point is that you're saying, hey, it's time to think about it and start this, Chris. If you guys don't get on it, they're going to continue. I think we can agree. Facebook, Twitter, all these people, they're going to favor Democrats and liberals. Yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. But I also think, well, but wait a second, though, because this is important. You, I mean, Twitter's not very big. <laughs> like, I, I mean, if you're talking about companies in power and how this works, and like even when we originally started with this, we, I mean, Twitter is has a whole different set of issues and all of that. If we're going to regulate that, I get very concerned about how we regulate that stuff because who polices the policers? Like, I mean, twi- if you look at Twitter compared to Amazon, Facebook, or Google, they just simply don't fall into the same categories that cause me the number one problem. Pro- Cause me my number one concern. What, what do you mean your number one concern? What, how big? They, I mean, essentially, you have to go at where they make their money. I'll, and you can see Google and Facebook's advertising, right? And how? And that that doesn't just affect everybody else. That affects local media. That affects pay, newspapers. That affects all of that. And their ad dominance is why they're allowed to get away with that, right? And Amazon's different. It's vertical integration. Quite frankly, if we're going to do two thirty reform, we should do it in the product liability specter because then you take a lot of those other conversations out of it. But let, let me back up to where I was going, and then I'm going to get back to the product piece because you're saying it's advertising. But you and I've already had the conversation. The actual product is the person, not the not the corporation. Yeah, but so my point is, you guys are saying, "Hey, Chris, maybe we start thinking about this." If y'all don't start doing something soon, you may never win a majority in the House or the Senate or the presidency again. And then you know the Democrats are going to go, "Okay, Facebook, go ahead. Okay, Twitter, go ahead," and it's going to be a moot point. So I guess, I guess, what what are you waiting for? What can you do today to make an impact? Well, I think the reason the reason you do it now is because both sides actually have serious concerns about these companies. We're in the minority in the House. We're at a 50-50 tie in the Senate. And there's, I mean, the, the, the answer is outside of the regulatory agency, anything we're doing, if we don't have bipartisan buy-in, we're not going to get done. And there is a real bipartisan buy-in to bring these companies into check. We don't always agree on what the problems are with the companies, obviously. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of times my Democratic colleagues want more censorship, not less. But we all have that's where we have to come together and recognize regardless of what your complaints about these companies are what are they and how do we how do we deal with it moving forward because the single biggest way to solve this is create create ecosystems where other other companies can compete with these companies so there was a senate uh, judiciary subcommittee hearing regarding the algorithms because you, you and i both know the algorithms make it so that i can just sit in my own little echo chamber i can only see news i want to see that makes me feel good is that a place where you see an opportunity to maybe make an impact and a difference to stop the division in the country and maybe impact? Well, I personally, I in my office, and I, I don't know how many other people were digging into that. There's actually, so, and what we're talking about is algorithms, but the natural conclusion to that is micro-targeting, right? Yes. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's political, doesn't matter if it's shopping, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, there's Denmark has actually gotten rid of micro-targeting across the uh, universe. So we are absolutely looking into some of those and whether there are some legisl- some ways to look at that. And whether, and it, like I said, it doesn't matter if it's how you're getting your news, how it's getting your information, how it's getting your shopping. I, I think there's real reasons. And I think that's the other part where we will get some serious buy-in. It is scary how much information these people carry about you, whether you're whether your phone's in airplane mode, turned off or not, how much of the, your daily life is just completely cataloged and taken by these companies. Absolutely shocking. If you've got questions for Congressman Armstrong, please just post them in the comments and we will get to those uh, for him. I want to talk about a 
lawsuit where it looks like the federal government is uh, not giving loan forgiveness to white farmers. Before we get to that, though, obviously, there's the big conversation about the GOP conference chair, Liz Cheney. Now there's a, I think it's Elise Stefanik who's also up for that possible position. Are you going to vote for uh, Representative Cheney or Representative Stefanik? Well, it'll be two votes. And no, I won't support uh, Representative Cheney at this point. Uh, and I'll tell you, we've had two of these, right? Well, so first of all, and uh, we dealt with the first one. And I will tell you what I said to a colleague of mine uh, during the first vote as this was all going down. I said, if you're campaigning in 18 months on who the Republican conference chair is, you're not really <laughs> doing it well. And now I'll tell you the flip side of that coin. If you are the conference chair of the Republican conference, and every member of your conference has to go home and answer questions about the member of the, who the conference chair is, you're not doing that job well either. And I, I just want to be clear, there's never been anyone that's required any kind of loyalty test for Representative Cheney or anyone else to wake up every morning and just say really great things about Donald Trump. But there's absolutely no reason that I mean to continue to give him the middle finger every day and create problems for not just her, but members in tough districts, members in red districts, members in swing districts. The conference chair is supposed to help us win elections. And if anybody's seen what's gone on in the last hundred and some plus days of the Biden administration, it becomes pretty important for North Dakota. So let me ask you this question, because this, this person just uh, faced or actually put this in on Twitter. Um, I don't think this is accurate. This He's saying you supported a coup. Why are you giving him credibility? You actually spoke out very strongly against it. But I do want to bring it up in this context, because there was a piece, I think, in the Wall Street Journal where when you're talking about, hey, I'm not going to vote for Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney's office basically saying, look, this is about whether the Republican Party is going to perpetuate lies about the 2020 election and attempt to whitewash what happened on January 6th. Liz is not going to do that. That's the issue. So if Liz is telling the truth about January 6th, why not vote for her? This, so first of all, any member of Congress, we aren't the Democrats. We don't require you to be in lockstep at every single step of the way. But you have a majority of the conference and quite frankly, 74 million Americans that still support President Trump. And you are in literally the one position in our conference where you have to get to build a consensus in order to move forward and win elections. The national media is always going to make this about whether it's a loyalty test to tr President Trump or not. And that's just there's simply a lot more to it than that. All right. So there's a lawsuit right now filed by some farmers up in the upper Midwest uh, because they're looking for loan forgiveness from a recent um, COVID stimulus plan that Biden signed off on. And what's happening right now is there's no loan forgiveness for white farmers. Everybody else, yes, white farmers know. So yesterday, Secretary of Ag Tom Vilsack was at the White House press conference. A person asked him about this. I want to share with you a little bit about what he had to say and then give you a chance to respond, sir. It's pretty clear that white farmers did pretty well under that program because of the way it was structured. It's structured on size and structured on production. Uh, so I, I think there is a, a very legitimate reason for doing what we are doing. I think it has to be complemented with additional steps, which the American Rescue Plan provides, an equity commission to take a look at whether or not there are systemic barriers that need to be re, uh, removed uh, at the department, and, and also uh, taking a look at how we might be able to create better technical assistance, better access to land, uh, better access to markets for socially disadvantaged producers and for local and regional uh, food production. So, Congressman, he's essentially defending uh, his authority to discriminate against white farmers. What say you? Well, first of all, it's worse than that, Chris, because it's not just a loan repayment. It's 120 percent of the loan repayment. And it, it true. I mean, you ha we have to acknowledge that particularly from US, historically, some of these USD pro programs in, in the Deep South and 
unfortunately, not as far back as we would like, actually did have some significant problems. And there's actually, I can't remember the name of the case, but a case on that. But the reality of this is, and I'm scared, we're doing equity hearings in climate, we're doing equity hearings in agriculture. We're, and we, there is no government program that should ever be run, by the way. And I think they're good. They're going to have pretty good merits on their lawsuit because you cannot cure what you dream racial, racial inequities with different racial inequities. And it doesn't matter how that works. And we continue to go down this road. And I, I just, I get very concerned with the word equity, particularly how we use it in the political spectrum, because it just continues to move forward and move forward. And it's, it's equity. I, equity is the least form in, in the legal system, the least, uh, preferred way in which if you settle cases we like monetary damages we like that they want to set up a they want to set up a commission and look at historical disadvantages that happen and find out if there's policy reasons moving forward where we can do that that's one thing but to allow only certain groups of farmers by made by the color of your skin to get 120% re loan repayment and have no other groups of farmers to be even be able to qualify for that is just simply bad policy well, not only that, but now we're spending federal tax money to, you know, fight against this lawsuit. These farmers are going to be out money paying for attorneys. It, it just seems beyond ridiculous that we're going to allow any kind of discrimination. Uh, I just can you can you dive into the term equity a little bit for our audience and help us understand what's going on here? Well, you know, we have equality. We have all these different things. I mean, we've seen these programs. Some of them have worked. Right. Like, I mean, and historically in college admissions and how we've dealt with college admissions and all of that. But I'm just saying we are, we are apparently using this word and using this as a way to what I think is just to continue to divide the country and move it forward and move it forward. And we, and like I said, we've had, I don't know how many hearings we've had in energy and commerce already about equity and climate crisis, equity, climate change, equity, all of these different things. And it's just simply, if we deal with it, we're one nation, we need to continue to work more so than most. I have talked, I mean, I spent 10 years as a criminal defense attorney. Do I think there are racial disparities in the criminal justice system? Yes, of course there are. We should work towards fixing those, but we should fix them in a way that makes the law colorblind again. And I think we're doing, so, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice moving the other way. Yes. I'm going to go a little bit outside the norm here with you, Congressman, just because okay. we're going down this conversation around equity and, and race and things of that nature, um, but there's been a big conversation about systemic racism. Um, first off, can you define systemic racism for us? And secondly, do you think there is systemic racism in America today? Uh, I don't think systems can be, first of all, I wanna say this. Yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna use it what I know the best, okay? And that'll be the criminal justice system, okay? So systems can't be racist. Systems are bricks and computers and desks and structures. And you take the human element and the human failure out of that. Racism, racism is a human failure. It's a human emotion where one person looks down on another person because of the color of their skin or whatever it is. And that is a terrible, horrible thing. So no, I don't believe in systemic racism and I don't know if we can really truly define it. What I will say is there are systemic racial disparities. And some things that even are passed in normal ways have, have disparate racial impacts. I'll give you a perfect example. School zone enhancements in big cities for drug crimes. It's a crime to commit it either way, but if you live inside of a school zone, the enhancement is like, if it's normally a 10 year sentence, if you're in the school zone, it's a 20 year sentence. 
Well, it's particular in large urban areas and, uh, and inner city schools, you have a lot of high density minority populations in those districts. So there are things we should look at. There are things we should work hard to solve. I'm on the bill to make crack sentencing the same as cocaine sentencing. So there are real, we, there are real places where smart people who care are working hard to fix this. But I don't think these conversations help drive that narrative. I just well, don't. You, you practically read my mind speaking about conversations that aren't helping drive the narrative. So you've got now the secretary of ag trying to defend the ability of the USDA to discriminate against white people. Um, this was uh, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz at a recent press conference. I want to play for you a little bit about this clip and just react to the clip, but also just this bigger picture of the conversation that's currently happening within this administration. We certainly should make sure that the licensing and standards around teachers, if there's no one white supremacist ties, that those are dealt with too. So I, I do think there needs to be a process. There needs to be due process for everybody. But you heard uh, our intelligence folks talk about this. You heard President Biden talk about it. Um, White supremacist extremism is the terrorism that we need to be most concerned about right now. And we need to take that on. Uh, do you agree with that in your reaction, sir? Well, so from the federal level, we talk a lot about this, right? Like white extremist groups, and we're going to deal with this. And why don't we treat them like foreign terrorist groups? Well, first of all, we keep talking a lot about that, but we haven't defined what it is. Uh, is it anybody who you think, I mean, is it? And this is really, really important when you're talking about these things, because oftentimes in D.C., what it ends up being what is whatever's politically convenient for the other side. And if you are and the second part is if it's domestic, the Fourth Amendment applies. One of the reasons we can monitor uh, foreign terrorisms is because the it's usually not on American soil or it's they're foreign actors and they don't have the same legal protections as every U.S. citizen has, whether they exist or not. But we keep this is a perfect example of where we keep running down a narrative without a definition. And I think you get to the point of anybody who's on any Facebook group that leans farther right than you do, you're going to call them a white supremacist. And that's not to, and that discounts the fact that there are white supremacist groups and there are these groups out there that we should absolutely flush, not flush off flush out of our society in general. Like they're, they're terrible organizations that they're defined by hate and they're defined by all of the things we were talking about earlier. But if you're going to deal with any of this stuff, you better actually define what the metrics are before you start persecuting and prosecuting them. Couple more questions for you, sir. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers came out to support DAPL, continue having oil flow through it. When's this judge going to finally make a decision? Kind of walk us through what you see happening here. Well, so the Corps' decision, the Corps' answer was good. It, right, it said, listen, we think the pipeline should continue to run because there's nothing that we see in the EI that we have seen so far that would make us not believe we're going to complete the EIS in, in favor of the core. But they also do it in the core kind of bureaucratic way where they say, but subject to change later. And actually in the last hearing, the judge kind of got on the core about we won't know, kind of that we won't know until we know attitude. So I think, listen, the only political decision that was ever made on this pipeline is when the Obama administration overruled their own Corps of Engineers to require an EIS instead of an, instead of an EA. And the only thing President Trump did when he got elected was just institute the Army Corps of Engineers decision from the Obama administration. This pipeline is safe. It goes through a corridor that already has a pipeline in it. We know this. It's been producing oil for four years now with no problems. And it's the safest, most secure way to move Bakken oil to markets. And so I hopefully we can get this get this, get this, this behind us and continue to do what we do best. Yeah. Um, last word, sir. You're a former state legislator, a senator. Just 
your assessment on the legislative session that just wrapped up? How would you grade it? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly, uh, so, and I will tell you, sometimes it's really hard for me not to weigh in on stuff at the legislative level, Chris. But as when I was chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee in the North Dakota Legislature, if one of my if one of my federal delegations would have just kind of started <laughs> weighing in from the cheap seats, I would have been very, 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 very uh, frustrated with that. So I work. Very, I know how hard they work, and I know where they're at, and I know this. Regardless of how anybody feels about how it went, you want our guys in North Dakota making decisions more than D.C. any chance you get. So let me, let me ask you maybe this way so you can weigh in. Montana is now saying, hey, no more of this long term unemployment um, from these COVID relief bills because businesses can't find workers. I mean, do you do you support that? I know you were in Mandan today, you know, with a workforce academy type situation. Where are we at? So I'm proud of my friend, uh, Governor. Um, the governor of Montana was my mentor in the legislature in the in the U.S. House last year. So uh, he's a very good friend of mine. He's doing a great job. I yeah, I think the next big conversation, combined with uh, some of the immigration problems, some of this, uh, you know, and they're not all policy, right? We've got uh, consulates overseas locked down because of COVID. I think we're we're hearing it every day. Finding workers is going to be the next big thing that gets our economy going. And I, it, just to be honest, if, if you can make more money not going to work than going to work when we have all these open jobs, that's that that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Open borders, right? That's the answer to solve the workforce problem. Yeah, we can't get legal immigrants in to do the guys that we've had coming back and forth to help in North Dakota egg community for years. But apparently we're, we're, we're practicing more catch and release than I think anybody thinks is uh, legitimate down at the southern border. Yeah, we, we didn't even get up, get to that today. But to be respectful of your time, uh, Congressman, it's always a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right, stay with us. Coming up at four o'clock today, I'm going to do a live stream. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk more about the situation here with going, what's going on with the USDA and this lawsuit. Also, the politics of persuasion. I'm going to sort of open up your eyes, if you will, in regards to how these politicians continue are trying to persuade you, but doing it in very subconscious ways. So join us for that uh, and much, much more coming up at four o'clock, a live stream right here. As always, thank you so much for joining us for these live stream and these town halls.